Hi, I'm Sage. I'm here with Adam, and uh, this, our 12th episode, another question. NPCs? NPCs. Non-player characters, which is a funny, funny term. Yeah, we kind of stretched to find a way to phrase this as a question, so it's just NPCs, question mark? Well, NPCs also is funny because the GM is a player. Yes. Uh, so. This is, oh man, every time I go to write a game, it annoys the hell out of me that we can't, uh, either you're breaking with the easiest thing for everybody who already plays to understand, right? Like players and GM, uh, and you know, you can call the GM something crazy, but the players is a pretty typical term. Right. Or you try and redefine all of it, in which case... Uh, the best I've seen is uh, they talk about everybody as players and they say there's one player who's different and this person we will call blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, which is not too satisfying. It, it isn't too satisfying. It kind of just says like they, they're a player but we don't call them that. <laughs> it's just a weird situation. So non-player characters. My, my answers uh, to the question of NPCs. <laughs> the, the question uh, is mostly about how to make good ones. Um, and I think that you have a different tack to this. Mine is also primarily about how to make good ones, but it's about particular kinds. Okay. Um, because I think when you are, uh, when you have somebody in your world that is not being, you know, actively controlled by another person, uh, it's really, really hard to keep track. And it's really hard to think about how much detail you actually want to add to this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about your number one first, and then okay. I'll figure out how I should order mine. Sure. My, my first thing to do uh, with NPCs, to, to make good NPCs, um, is keep it simple. Uh, this is something that I've learned from a number of games, uh, mostly from people who design their games from a bit of an improv standpoint. But I, I don't like that this gets associated with like, oh, those improv theater people because that's not really me um the the idea is the npcs that you make don't have to be these complex nuanced people like they can just be the first thing that comes to your head um for for a few reasons first of all most people are kind of simple on the level that you interact with them like there's a lot of depth to people but the parts of people you see the most are kind of straightforward. Well, and most people in in the RPGs that we're talking about are extras. Yeah, that's that's my number one. Yeah, I guess because I'm gonna okay, do it. Go for do it, it this go direction. For it. Um, is this similar kind of thing where you know your characters might meet fifty, a hundred people in the course of several sessions, mm-hmm. and you don't want to have deep, complex motivations for all of them that you know about, well, and even the ones that they that they do see fairly often they're they're outside of that person they're going to know maybe 50% of what's going on with that person so you don't have to worry that much like they they you don't have to have depth to every character they can plunge into because right. most of the time the the players are not going to ever see those depths yeah you definitely like when you are introducing somebody new it needs to be as little as you can get away with um, maybe you don't say anything about this person. Maybe this is the person that has a shotgun, and that's the only thing the players have to care about. Yep. Maybe this is the person behind the bar who has an eye patch, and that's yep. that's all you need to say, right? Well, no, really direct motivation goes a huge way. Like, the guy with the shotgun uh, wants you off his land. Right. Like, he, he doesn't have to have, you know, his family buried on the land, and this is important to him and stuff like he just wants you off his land and if you ask him about it he's going to say i don't really care like that's none of your business get off my land right uh the giving somebody just a really direct simple uh motivation for kind of one of the classic things that people want like money or love or freedom like just do it yeah a straight up list a want list yep uh, I really want a want list. It's almost more important than a name list because quite often you have no idea what the name of this person is. I think I'm going to come back to that later, but I'll, okay. I'll keep that off in the distance. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the other thing, important thing to think about with NPCs is just the screen time, like the right. the number, the amount of times that they are in the part of the fictional world that we're paying attention to is going to be much lower than the players. Like right. a player character could have all this stuff going on, but most. NPCs are going to show up for a fraction of that time. I think even for the extras, though, just one detail is really good. Yes. Uh, If you're the kind of DM that does accents, uh, 
you don't have to have a different accent for every single person, but every so often having an accent as your detail, mm -hmm. uh, people, you know, it's just, it just is more of the world, right? And, and uh, the thing that illustrated this for me is the Lord of the Rings movies. They went through all the work of, like, giving each culture their own looks and stuff. Right. And I just imagine, when I'm GMing, I try to just touch on that in, like, the lightest ways. You know, if... Uh, in our Apocalypse World Dark Age game, uh, there's different cultures, and there th we have a few kind of easy signifiers for those uh, that you can just mention that, like, they are uh, wearing armor. Like, that that actually means that they're probably not one of the mountain people and stuff. And, like, that, just having details that mean something in the world and being frank with your players about it. I think a lot of people like to throw in the details because these are, like, important things for the players to figure right. out, which... Uh, it's a problem with savvy players, right? And that's another reason not to go too detailed because as soon as you start giving somebody a lot of detail, mm -hmm. much more than you normally give, suddenly, oh, this person must be important, which is not a super satisfying way to move. Yeah, if you're going to have details as information, you have to be good at it. Like, this is one of those OSR uh, DMing skills, is the ability to communicate details in such a way that's both very fair but also challenging right. um, and I, I don't play in that mode as often I tend to like my character to have some ability to get that information from the world um, and I actually play like we, we play things that skew more OSR but we tend to bring that back in um, which is actually what Vincent Baker did in his um, Lamentations of the Flame Princess module there's basically rules in there that poured over his apocalypse world moves for like figuring things out nice. um, because that's that's a functional way to play it to, to shift the OSR a little bit but the point being that then the details that you say don't have to be hidden clues to the players because it's their character that picks up on details in the like Sherlock Holmes sense of like his dirty fingernails or whatever right but there can be like as far as extras, so if you're if you're pretty consistent about uh, various random um, details, like mm -hmm. you know mountain uh, mountain people in armor and type of stuff like that, then if you throw in a detail that's slightly off, uh, maybe that's that has nothing to do with anything that yeah. anybody is actually playing. But if the players pick up on that and want to push it, then it can be something really interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, something else I've learned, uh, while developing my own game, uh, is that names matter a ton or some way of referencing something. Yes. So the guy with the eye patch, uh, the, the bartender, the, you know, trader that had a ton of furs, any way that you can give people a way to reference mm -hmm. a person is just so important. And so just a detail to let them hook something on is yep. really big. We played a game of D&D &D where the leader of the village uh, was uh, described by the GM as like the biggest guy you've ever seen. is this huge buff guy. And for the... We had one player who just kept on being like... we He was... Uh, the leader of the village had been lost or something. And we were like, have you seen the biggest man you've ever seen? Like, that that's all you need is that detail of... we. Uh, I think his name was Hawk or something. But like... Who knows? I, I remember he was the biggest, biggest man, man right? I've ever seen. Yeah. And that's and that's what you hook everything to. And oh man, just so huge. Yeah. And and you can pretty much the more details you have, the more is supporting kind of this game world mm -hmm. as a place in people's heads, and not just a tactical situation that you have to solve. Right. And the more you can signify with those, like you don't have, it. Uh, you can. Be upfront with it. So a lot of times in games, I'll introduce, like, I've been recently trying to focus on um, the way people dress a little bit and, like, describe different cultures as having different styles. Right. And all, uh, it doesn't have to be this, like, hidden code for the players to pick at. It's the, like, it's he's just wearing, normal, right? He's wearing the flowing sleeves that you know somebody from the, the East islands would often wear right? right and you can just leave that second part out pretty quickly because it's like oh yeah he's yeah. this kind of person yeah. or he's got a scimitar oh of course right yep. she's got two bows because they're different sizes and they have this particular way of fighting oh yeah totally and you just start building on those details like they're they're uh there are things that once they are incorporated into the game become such easy shorthands if you invest in them a couple times um 
so yeah, keeping keeping your NPCs direct. Um, I like to use a piece of advice from Monster Hearts that actually is supposed to apply to player characters, but my NPCs are always stolen cars. Sure, uh, you. I can always make more of them. Right. Um, this is the crosshairs principle, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, so my NPCs, uh, it, it's not even that you're looking for them to crash and burn. Like, if you steal a car, you don't want it to crash and burn, but you also don't care if it crashes and burns. Right. Uh, you just push it and push the game forward. Like, you push that NPC's agenda, um, which is usually something simple and direct about, like, a basic human need or want or something, and just go with it. Yeah, it's a big thing about being a DM... Uh, it, because you have a ton of characters to worry about. Mm-hmm. So you can't have a super complex motivation for all of them because you just can't keep that in your head. It's amazing how often these characters become more complex in the player's understanding of them. Because to you, it's like, oh, he uh, wants money because a lot of his money was stolen. Like That's that, it. That, that, that's a straightforward, easy or to explain thing. Or you start with, he wants money... Full stop. Yeah, and eventually you're like, oh, I guess he probably wants money for a reason, and you figure out that his money was stolen, or like he he didn't get his inheritance or whatever. But like, to a the when you're trying to figure that out from outside of that person, from a different point of view as a player, uh, even just figuring out what his motivation is, like he wanting money, right, may take a while. Like as a player, you're gonna be like, oh, he he sabotaged our expedition and got his guys in there. He uh, is probably trying to claim that land, and he's actually like going there to to dig up some treasure or whatever. Like that, all these things that uh, the the asymmetrical information make way more interesting. So right. just trust that as a GM. Totally. What's your number two? Uh, my number two is um, I looked for a term for it. I ended up calling it pillars of NPCs. Um, so this is a thing that a few games do. Um, often descended from Apocalypse World, because in Apocalypse World, they're the um, fundamental scarcities that basically drive fronts and or people. Uh, and you, the, in the GM sheet, you kind of have this ring of the fundamental scarcities written around the edge, and you write NPCs kind of where they fall along all these different things they could want. Um, and Speaking of the want list, yeah. Exactly. This is where I was getting back to your want list. Um, so that kind of says that like NPCs in this game all want something, and here are the things that in this world people want. And there's such fundamental things like hunger and desperation that uh, they kind of apply everywhere, but they they specifically speak to that game. Right. Um, Which is another way of putting setting across, right? Yeah, exactly. And then uh, in Sagas of the Icelanders, which is the Apocalypse World-derived game that I think does the best job of keeping that particular element, um, each of the characters you write... That you have kind of the same ring, but instead of it being scarcities, it's uh, the Norse gods. And so you put them with uh, around the god that they kind of align with the most. Not necessarily like worship or anything, like everybody, it, it's a big pantheon, everybody worships everybody, but which one is kind of the uh, archetype. archetype of this person. Yeah. And that really helps you get into the these NPCs. And they're, they're such fundamental archetypes and unfortunately I always fall into also making the Marvel characters uh, <laughs> but like you 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 look at Loki and you're like oh I, I know that like right. I can have lots of takes on that they can pursue that kind of trickster underhanded agenda in different ways but it gives me an easy starting point it gives me like the thing that I can look at uh, and that's the other thing P- putting such direct and or tying them to pillars Helps you remember your NPCs because you have a lot. Man, oh yeah, there's a ton of books about writing characters from an archetypical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen ones use Roman and Greek gods. I've seen the Norse gods be used, and all this kind of stuff. And I think it all, a lot of it, goes back to having that name again, mm-hmm. um, because describing Loki is relatively difficult in its complexity. Like, you can say trickster, but trickster is just another name. Yep. Um, and you, so you have all of these archetypes sitting underneath that. You can say Tom Hiddleston, and then you've pretty much entirely described it. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it, becomes, it becomes, okay, it's like this, but with this style elevator pitch, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you say, oh yeah, this, this, this woman is Loki, uh, but she has this one particular motivation where you can get at her underneath type of thing. Yep. Um, which allows you, as GM, to immediately get a handle on this thing, mm-hmm. uh, which is really nice. It's a huge 
uh, jump forward and understanding your NPCs and in being able to get back to them. Right. Um, oh, I, yeah. I can't tell you in some of my, especially my early gaming notebooks. <laughs> Who was this person? N- yeah, exactly. I'm like, oh, this person was apparently important. Yeah, and the car- um, your other players totally know who this person is. Yep. They're like, oh yeah, when we get back, we're gonna we're gonna go back into the bar and talk with that princess who's the bartender. And you're like, oh wait, who who was that? Mm-hmm. And, and that was actually the hilarious thing that came back to the uh, tallest man you've ever seen story. Because the, <laughs> as players, we all remembered this. Um, and oh, actually, now one that I, detail that you pick up on. Now that I remember it, it wasn't the tallest man, or the biggest man you've ever seen who went missing. It was somebody else. But the reason <laughs> I got this wrong is because one of the players, uh, like we were looking for the guy who was missing. And it was like, have you seen the largest man you've ever seen? And like, yeah, he's, he's back in the village. And we're like, oh, wait, we got the wrong guy. Like, Well, everybody has seen the largest man you've ever seen. That's, that's, that's the problem with looking for somebody by that descriptor. Yeah. Um, and I think the other element of this is uh, random tables. Like, there, there are games that achieve this same kind of pillars of NPC thing by having you roll on a random table. Um, like, Vornheim has some awesome kind of multi-dimensional tables that give you results both in kind of class stuff and in more, like, profession slash what they're doing kind to of stuff. To give you an architect to base everything around. Yeah, I think the that... It, it varies a little bit from the pillars approach that I was talking about because to me the pillars approach is about having just a few things that you can always go to. I'm um, sure you could roll randomly between like the six or however many it is once, but you're generally just going to assign them. Whereas a random table, it still kind of has this idea of easy things to bind people to built in, but instead there can be a lot more of them and you can abdicate some responsibility. Totally. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of my favorite... NBC techniques from a starting a game perspective, uh, or even in the middle of the game, you look at like these are the types of people they've been running into. Let's let's build those, uh, and like you said, there's all these different ways you could slice up all the NPCs, and I, I look forward to seeing more games do that. Um, as much as I like Saga's approach, I hope that not too many games copy Apocalypse World as directly. Right. Uh, this has actually been kind of my pet thing uh, recently is that I want to see more Apocalypse World games that. Aren't very much like Apocalypse Aren't World. very much like Apocalypse World, exactly. Totally. Uh, and uh, I'm so guilty of this. Like, Dungeon <laughs> like, build World. Build more is... games. Do, do what I say, not <laughs> what I do. <laughs> exactly. build, build different games. Exactly. For sure. Um, yeah. So yeah, the, the pillars. Uh, that is one of your greatest things in your GM tool chest. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think a lot of that goes right down to, to building this thing and kind of fleshing it out, which mm-hmm. is where I go with my second. Um, so I'm talking about types of characters. Yep. And so everybody starts as an extra in, in this idea. Oh, interesting. And then as they get more... Because like, we were talking uh, a couple weeks ago about how uh, when I GM, I'm just totally improv, and if stuff happens, stuff happens. And so the first time people meet a character... As far as I'm concerned, they're all NPCs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, they're all extras, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care who this person is. I'll give them a detail so that we can hang something on this person. But that's pretty much it. And then if they meet them again, or they care about that detail, or they care about this character, you know, they come back into town and they're like, we need to find that person to do whatever. And it's like, oh, maybe this is a minor character. A little bit bigger than an extra. Maybe I should care a little bit about, you know, their archetype. Maybe I should care a little bit about their motivation. Maybe I should care a little bit, just a little bit. Um, And thinking about, you know, extras, extras I've got, you know, somewhere. You know, my players will remind me the detail that is bringing them back. But I really don't care who they are. Minor characters get a line. Mm -hmm. Uh, If I play multiple games with a group, that line is the... Between this game and that game, what is that minor character doing? I wonder what they're doing now. Are they off screen, you know, making something happen? Are, are they involved at all in this in this overarching whatever? Nice. Uh, I, I like that concept a lot. Um, do you find that characters ever kind of move the other way? Like, once do they have a line, is it kind of set? Or do you sometimes just, like, stop tracking them between sessions? Oh, there's totally the... Like, players don't get the happy ever after moment, but NPCs totally do. <laughs> um, and, and because, I mean, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a DM technique that people pull out a lot, which is, oh yeah, go after all the stuff that they really like, which would mm-hmm. include these kind of minor characters, right? Your mom or uh, your best friend's sister or whatever. 
uh, you know, your your dad who is 80 years old and retired uh, warrior or whatever. And, and, you know, you're like, well, yeah, this horrible thing just happened to your dad. And it's like, you know, that's not the best way to use minor characters. Sometimes they're just setting. Yeah. And, and if people... And if they don't come up a lot, if they're not coming up in a session to session, then they slowly move back to extras. But I've got all this information on them. Yeah, you can you always know. go back to it. And, right. You know. so, but, you know, I'm not going to... Uh, as a minor character, I'm not pushing minor characters in the players' faces. Mm-hmm. They are there, and they're slowly getting fleshed out as interactions happen. But but I'm not saying, oh, yeah, I remember this person. We're going to make something happen with that. Because... Yep. Just not. And I found that the the rem- if I as the GM push uh, a minor person from like your your categorization here, which uh, is actually pretty reflective of how I do things, if I push that person too much, the player like it often kind of stretches belief. To it a feels degree. really forced. Yeah, like the when we were playing Pendragon, I was adding a lot of stuff to the the normal kind of Pendragon years because that it fit our playstyle a little bit, and. Um, there was a, a Saxon wizard or something who was uh, coming after them and started out as kind of a minor, like, oh, he did this one thing. And then the next time that happened, and it was even more targeted at the PCs, one of my players was actually like, really? This guy is, like, this obsessed with us? Like, he doesn't have better things to do than, right. like... And, uh, you know, I kind of did the Pendragon thing and kind of like, oh, there's bigger things going on. <laughs> You're like, I better come up with some bigger things. Yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it was totally just like, oh, I have this minor guy. What is he doing? He should probably do something to antagonize the players because that creates... And it, when you push that too much, it just really falls flat. You have to let things happen. Right. It's really weird uh, trying to figure out when you need a new character versus an existing one. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that if you have the right tools, like, you know, talking about random tables and archetypes and stuff to build extras just really quickly on the fly, you should just always do new characters. Um, Unless there's an obvious existing character that just has to be here because nothing else makes sense. You might as well do a new character. Well, and the the tools to build characters is one of my biggest uh, issues with a lot of games and NPCs. Um, so the the kind of fundamental challenge here is as the GM, even if it's right in the moment, you've probably come up with a picture of this person in your head. And translating that into the parts of the game that matter. The mechanical pieces. Yeah, yeah I don't quite like mechanics. But anyway, like... The, but that's... The, right, you, you are... Putting, putting numbers or, or labels on these things. Translating them from your head in kind of the shared space that everybody's imagining. Um, depending on the system you're using, that can be kind of a pain, really. Well, that's the great thing about extras, though, is that if there's something lost in translation for an extra, who cares? Yep. Uh, the big problem there is that, you know, NPCs are not just, uh, you know, neutrals, mm-hmm. I guess, right? NPCs are also hostile, NPCs. Yep. Uh, I have played so many games uh, with relatively new RPGers who want to talk to the kobolds and get them to calm down, mm-hmm. um, which is wonderful. Yes. Uh, and and the best thing to do there is upgrade them to extras, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Saying saying yeah yeah they're not going to listen to you even though you may happen to know draconic yeah. uh, or whatever. Is just not very satisfying. And for somebody that's never played before, and you sit down and you go, yeah, you're walking into this cave, and oh, there's a dude with a spear, and they're like, well, let's try and, you know, talk to him. And it's like, well, that's a really interesting way for this game to go. Mm-hmm. Let's play that out. Totally different world. We can we can run with that. And suddenly, extra. Yep. And the, the point where it gets really tricky to do that translation process, I think, is where an extra comes in in a way where... You have something in your head that really needs to be communicated accurately. So the, sure. the classic thing is kind of the uh, like the players decide to um, head off into the mountains where they know the mountain men live, um, and the mountain men are supposed to be fearsome warriors. And you, as the player, or you as the GM, now have to figure out like, wait, what what does being a fearsome warrior mean? Like they're they're known for splitting people's heads with their axes. Okay, uh, well, you say this guy's carrying an axe. Like that's the that's the thing about introducing an NPC in general is that really you have to introduce them purely sensory, mm-hmm. um, and sensory things uh, 
sometimes it's just hard to describe, but hopefully nothing mechanical is lost in translation. Like, well, you don't have to care that this is an axe that does D8 damage or anything Well, like but that's that. kind of my point. In some games, uh, like, I think that describing people by things they are known to do and how, how well they are known to do them is a typical thing to do in, in just, like, conversation and especially in a describing a fantasy world. Sure. Like, this, uh, the, the, the dwarves that work with stone. Exactly. Kind of thing, the, yeah. the, the notedly stout dwarves who can, you know, drink their heads off and uh, all that. Um, translating that into the rules of the game in a way that feel that, that honors what you have established about them already uh, can be really tricky in some games. Um, if you've established them, though, you can really just give tiny signifiers, and the players will fill in all that detail. See, I, I don't know about that. Like, if, Especially in if you've uh, established something that could apply to combat, because that's where in a lot of games you see the most rules, uh, and you can't follow through, like you don't yeah. have the ability to follow through on that. So uh, a friend of mine, we were talking uh, just earlier this week, he was playing... Um, Pathfinder and the GM obviously had this idea that there was a book in a script that could not be read. Uh, like, th- this was what was in the GM's head. And to translate that into the game, because this player was playing a wizard, um, it turns out that you need to know that, like, Comprehend Languages works on basically every language unless it's written in code, in which case it does. And so, like, the, for the GM to communicate this thing that, like, this is obscured in a way that not even magic can read it, requires like a complex knowledge of the game. No, it doesn't. You can just say, this is obscured in a way that not even magic well, can read it. Well, but as a player, you're like, no, it says in the book right here. I, it can read all languages. And you say, DM Fiat, screw the book. But that that's uh, not satisfying it's in a not. lot of cases. But, but the problem there is, is twofold. The problem there is uh, that D&D is not a game where you put something in front of characters and say, this is impossible. Yes. Because that's just not what D&D is. Sure. And then the other problem is uh, that the characters are playing a game where they don't care if something is supposed to be impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, like, you have to play the game that you're playing. Yes. You know. but, but the... Okay, so... Uh, but, but, but if you're playing... So if you're playing Apocalypse World Dark Ages... Mm-hmm. And you're saying, oh yeah, everybody knows that the mountain men are, you know, split people's heads with their axes. You can say, they're walking up in the mountain, you can say, you see somebody far off who looks like they've got a gigantic axe on their back. And that is the entire amount of detail you need, right? Well, but it becomes important once you're in combat. Like, I mean, assuming that you fight the mountain men like we did. Um, and, <laughs> like, the when you are fighting a mountain man and it turns out that they only de- dealt a point of damage when they uh, landed a hit on you, that, like, that's not going to happen in Apocalypse World uh, itself or Dark Ages because you, as a GM, have a pretty easy translation to do from the thing in your head. Like, this can pretty much kill you with... If they get a good strike, they're going to kill you. You can translate that pretty directly. Whereas... Um, when I was first playing D20, uh, we this person was supposed to be a master swordsman. Right. And figuring Translating out... Translating master swordsman to numbers. Exactly. That That is a really tough thing. And so the, this is, I think, one of the biggest selling points of um, some of the the kind of rules lighter RPGs in the sense... Uh, I dislike that term as well. But anyway, it, it's at least understandable. It's, it, it, has, it has a poor connotation, perhaps, but it's a great term. Like, the, the idea that this is a game that you can fit in your head mm-hmm. is super important, and it's not a bad thing about a game, Well, right? and the, in particular in Apocalypse World, since it relies on the fiction so much, things can come from your head into play relatively directly. Like, you right. don't have to perform quite as many translations... Um, and that's not necessarily always a great thing. Like, Burning Wheel requires a fair amount of work if you really want to get a concept across, and you can really screw it up, like I did with this wizard that I made, who <laughs> died uh, multiple times. Um, the, the, as a GM, I'd made up what I thought was, you know, a powerful wizard, and nope. Um, that's not itself a knock, but I think right. that they're, especially for the games that I want to go to the most, uh, it's really nice to just be able to take the concept that's in my head. Like, this guy is uh, a baker who's good at his job. Like, I don't have to figure out that that means that he's got this skill to baking because the players need to break, bake elven bread or whatever. Right. Like, I can just say, like, no, this guy is a really good baker. If you get him the ingredients, he can make it. Right. And 
Yeah. I wonder if, um, given enough time with Burning Wheel, you could build NPCs on the fly like that. I mean, there's uh, a note, at least in the non-gold edition, I don't think I... I don't recall seeing it in gold. It's It may be still be there. About quick NPCs. Sure. Which gets you a fair amount of the way there. Um, but I believe the recommendation is for like your most serious NPCs, you still life path them. Right. And that's never something you're going to do in your head. Well, I mean, <laughs> that's the that's the problem with this path. Uh, so let's talk about my, my numero uno. Um, so, you know, this path that goes from extras to minor characters to major characters, mm-hmm. which is my number one. Yep. Um, and if... If you're playing a system where each step in that path is a little bit more work, uh, then it's going to be really hard for you to actually have major characters show up as fast as you maybe need to. Mm-hmm. But in the case where you've got a minor, uh, where you've got an extra, and they turn into a minor, and you're like, oh, these people are going to totally ask about this person, and I'm going to need to know who they are, then hopefully you have time to prep. Yeah. But if you have you know, mountain men walking over the hill with an axe, and the characters go from hmm, you know, we need to get some information out of this person to long extended conversation with them that turns into fight, mm-hmm. uh, then you probably don't have enough time to, to stat out some massive character. Yeah, and it, there, one way to avoid that is to not paint yourself into too many corners of, like, you know, the, the mountain men are good at this or whatever, like, but... Practically, that's stuff you want to say a lot, and that's stuff yeah, that you want to find setting, out, right? Like, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so your third point actually lines up really well with mine, um, because I, I was searching for a good way to phrase this, but basically, don't presume you know what an NPC, uh, how an NPC is going to fit in. Sure. Um, I don't think most of the time you know who a major character is until they're in play. Right. I would say that even... Even uh, the first few times they're in play. Yeah. The, this is something that's bitten me on the ass so many times. <laughs> trying to, like, make the big evil guy who right. is the main problem of the campaign, it just... It it very rarely works. Yeah, I've played I've played a game of... I, we used to play 4E. Um, this was way before you got to Google. Uh, and we... The best hardcore villain that we got was... One fight in particular was just going against the players mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And the the hardest villain on the other side was this ogre mage. And ogre mages can go into smoke because that's their thing. And in 4E, 4E says, this is what this person can do. Happens to be an ability. And I'm like, that's an interesting ability. Mm-hmm. This fight goes horribly against the other players. And I go... And so they slowly come back because in 4E you never die. And are coming after the Ogre Mage, and the Ogre Mage poofs into smoke and leaves. Mm-hmm. And they're like, screw that guy. We want to go get him. And suddenly, okay, big bad evil guy. There, I better come up with you know more information about this person. Yep. And the more you try to invest that up front, the more chance there is to go wrong. Right. So the, the wizard that I mentioned earlier, I was sure was the big bad evil guy of this game and the, pretty much the first time the players confronted him they killed him right. and then he came back as a ghost because you had to right yeah I, I mean that one was actually it was kind of there was a whole bunch of dealing with the dead in the game so he came back as a ghost but at that point he kind of he wasn't so much the big bad evil guy anymore he was almost comic relief not quite actually comical but like they now had the guy who was supposed to be this great wizard uh like they ended up binding him to a tree uh, <laughs> and they were just like yeah no then yeah it's a it's a game design question right in in game design you don't want to get too attached to your ideas mm-hmm. um especially when they're early because you have no idea if they're going to work or not I, and I think that it keeps you creating a more living world. Like, right. uh, if you've decided that the problem with why the kobolds are raiding is because they've got a new king who is, uh, you know, driving them to raid, and the players take out, like, you you think that you've created a kobold that is tough in a fight. Right. You haven't, and right. it gets killed immediately. If you're... If you've sold yourself on this being how the game goes, then all of a sudden you're, you're flailing around. Whereas if you're not so invested in that, then you can you can adapt. like the And you can look at the situation more honestly. Because it probably wasn't one person who's causing all your problems. Right. It's probably like a systematic thing of, you know, oh, the, the kobolds 
water supply is gone, so they can't farm anymore. Um, it's kind of like throwing out the great person type of history and <laughs> trying to go with more of a like holistic approach. Sure. Um, yeah, I think a lot of that becomes um, this very interesting curtain kind of magic trick where... Uh, you know, here's a bunch of people and you're meeting a bunch of people. I mean, the, like the apocalypse world, follow people around for mm-hmm. a day is great because it generates all of these extras just by virtue of existing. There's going to be other people in this world uh, in most apocalypse world games mm-hmm. and they will meet these other people and stuff will happen because these other people want things and the wants that actually turn into, okay, this is a relationship now Upgrade that person. Yeah. Um, then you can start thinking about, well, why is this person like this? Well, who are they, you know, reporting to? Or, uh, you know, why is the world like this in the first place? And that allows you to do prep. And I think it's interesting because depending on the game system, it that can be more or less of a kind of veil. Um, yeah. So in Apocalypse World, I actually don't feel like that's all that much of a veil because the... Well, so the big veil part, though, uh, I lost my train of thought in the middle. The big veil part is uh, that, you know, four or five sessions down the road, and they are preparing to go fight big bad evil woman A, who has three henchmen uh, that they've all met three multiple times before, and, you know, this person is going with them that's a super powerful wizard. When that happens, uh, players that may be a bit naive about the GMing process can be like, this is an amazing story that you've made, you know, <laughs> that you planned out. You know, this crazy stuff is going on. You must have thought a whole lot about this. And you as the GM are like, well, stuff's happening. Yep. And, you know, this person's apparently important, so I better oh, okay, give I got them it. a background. I thought the veil was uh, the, the kind of thing where the, the fact that the NPC was not defined up front. Some people would treat that as, like, the fact that they weren't fully fleshed out is a form of... Um, kind of modifying the world as it goes, which I, I, I don't feel like that's the case. I feel Barely. Like, I, I feel like there's this kind of big, ungiven cloud that we know some constraints on, but we don't know exactly what's in it. The quantum yeah. game world, right? Because we're never going to entirely describe our entire game world, so there's a lot of stuff where like, we know that this NBC is uh, runs the bar and likes uh, one of the players and lets them sleep there. And all the rest of the facts that fill the, that in are in this kind of indeterminate state that are constrained by those. You can't right. suddenly reveal that actually, no, they, they don't own the bar, they're just pretending they do or something. Like, that. those things are the what I thought the veil... The established stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's more the... Um, if you've played with savvy players who don't want to plan in the GM's earshot mm-hmm. type of stuff... Um, I've definitely run the games before where the the players are like, "Oh, how did you plan all this?" And I'm like, <laughs> "No, I." Or well, the the best part is players that say things like, "Well, okay, if the dragon is planning this thing, then we need to do this and this." But if the dragon has this particular contingency plan, and you're like, "That's a really good idea. I'm going to write that down." Right? Um, but, see, I actually don't like. I feel like that's a little. Cheap. Like, I try to, if, if players are making a de- decision based on something, I feel like as a GM, that's my time to kind of lock it in. Well, the problem is, so in, I use this example specifically, uh-huh. a dragon is way smarter than I am. Yes. And so what I ideally want to be going on is that the players can do all this planning because they really like to. Mm-hmm. And once the players are done planning, I'm like, what's the most interesting part there? Let's zoom to that. We'll assume that everything they thought is accurate and we'll do interesting stuff at that location. Um, and, you know, my players know that I don't mind having people die, or especially my people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they don't mind so much having that big zoom. Yeah. Um, and they really like the planning purposes. So, And that's part of it. You, you have players who plan a whole lot more. but I uh, Your since, players do not. They, they do Your not plan to the not. same degree. And so I, if, if they are undertaking planning, I try and lock things in. But even if you do, there, there are still some things that... Are, are not going to be... You're not necessarily going to have thought of. Like, right. there, there's no way for you to have thought of all these details. Like, if the players realize that they've got, you know, the 
the magic arrow that can fire 40 feet that is a key part of their plan, and all of a sudden the lair that you haven't mapped out yet, you need to know, like, is that 40 feet to, from the entrance to where the dragon sleeps, or is it 60 feet or... 20 feet. Right. Like the, the, Especially in a system that cares about those kind of details. Well, I, I, yeah, I chose a, a relatively numerical one because that's easier to go with, but you could totally do the same thing in Dungeon World. The, like, uh, the cleric's god is the god of uh, knowledge or something, and so if there's a lot of books in the dragon's horde, maybe the god will care. And at that, like... If the players are planning based on that, and you as the GM have not, like, thought at all about... It's a bunch of rich stuff. Um, there's always going to be moments like that. And yeah, but at, the, but at the moment, I mean, you know, this is how you would play, I'm sure. At the moment, the cleric goes, hey, are there books in the Dragon's Horde? Yeah. You're like, well, sure, you know, that sounds cool. And that's that last part is the important part, right? That sounds cool, let's go for it. Not a, well, I planned it out, and it looks like in my planning he has exactly 27 gold pieces yeah. and 25 goblets, but no books. Yeah, and I, I think that the the important thing there is not even just automatically saying, yes, he does. Like, I, I would probably actually ask the player, like, how do you know? That would be my response. Sure, sure. Like, uh, and then I would, uh, like... This is the the thing that always comes up with. I've been trying to avoid the term, but illusionism in games, which is yeah. uh, since we have some people who are less a- avid gamers uh, listening, illusionism is this idea that um, if the players come up to a forking pathway and you as the GM have an interesting thing planned, that interesting thing is now down whichever fork they head to. Right. Um, and th- that kind of like negating choice thing is pretty crappy. But there's also always going to be these times where the players need a detail in the moment that could make or break them that you haven't that hasn't been established hasn't been sufficiently established. Right, and in those cases, the big thing is, I mean, I guess there's there's several paths. Um, the big, I guess, one way you could go is just always say yes, uh, which is fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I. I like playing that way because generally the games that I play have very specific decision points where the game will say, okay, yes, totally, uh, no, but, uh, or, you know, whatever. And so I generally will say yes to things that seem legitimate in the fiction and uh, don't, you know, totally destroy the world that we've collaboratively built, right? And then there are other games where it tells you explicitly well, when this thing happens, think of a probability and just roll. Yep. Um, and that's perfectly legit, too. But a lot of the times I worry, uh, I'm really, really hard-pressed to think up uh, no responses on the fly mm-hmm. is the other reason that I just kind of default to yes so much of the time. And the the ones where it's like, uh, the cleric goes, oh, well, does he have books? Uh, and if I roll and it's no, then it's like, no, cut that entire you know, leg of planning off and, mm-hmm. you know, go back and do something else. Um, but I guess, you know, the Dungeon World uh, toolkit would include stuff about, you know, I, knowledge roles. I right? think it's definitely a, a matter for each game to resolve. So in Dungeon yeah. World, as far as what's actually in the world, as the GM, you've got your agenda and principles to go by. And so you uh, you probably come down to mostly judging the fiction and being like, you know, uh, dragons are smart. I'm sure that a dragon would probably have quite a few books. Right. Um, and the players may not immediately know that, but that's as the GM probably have you define it. And other games can do completely different things. There's a lot of functional answers there. But I like games that at least tell you the answer that works best with the rest of their rules. Mm-hmm. Like, in Dungeon World, that works really well. Like, you, you as the GM establish it, and you've got a few things about, you know, a fantastic world, um, putting making the players' lives interesting. And so you probably don't go with something that, like, completely negates what's apparently in the shared understanding. Because, like, if, if you're like, oh, no, dragons don't have hordes. Um, <laughs> then you're going to have a lot of explaining. Th- that's a much bigger discussion, and you have yeah. to, like, allow for a lot more rewinding and stuff. But you prob- I would probably uh, come up with a solution based on what we know, because th- that's the other thing. So many of these examples you can't give in kind of a blanket response. Right. It's in your game. Like, if the players uh, have already done a lot of research on this and... I would assume like they have figured that out, uh, or maybe dragons are big dumb lizards in this setting. There'd be no reason they'd have books, and I'd say no. And well, I think I think in this particular example, um, so 
try and get a system generic as possible. Mm -hmm. You have some kind of uh, God-connected, you know, magician in a sense. You have some big bad guy, and the the player wants to know a detail about the bad guy's hideout that they wouldn't obviously know for the purpose of exploiting that detail. Yes. Um, I think quite often the answer is, well, how would you exploit it? Should it be there? Try that, and then we'll see what happens. Um, because in the cleric in Dungeon World case, uh, it's possible they roll six minus. Uh, and you get to have much more interesting conversation, whether or not there are books. Right? Yeah, when, when they so them finding out the information is, is one thing, and right. then their ability to exploit it. Like in in theater, if the players are really planning for this, they should be planning for either eventuality. It's mostly a question of as you as a GM, like from the player point of view, all of this should be like uh, you know the GM may say how do you know, or the GM may tell you the answer. But the question is, as a GM, how are you establishing this when it's already kind of on the table that the players are planning based on this. Like, you're always going to be in these cases where you have to establish things that, if this was a actually fully established world, would would actually exist. But you as the GM have to decide them somehow. And the good games give you a guide to that. Yeah, that's one of the hard parts about this entire discussion, right, is the, the hard... The difficulties of doing a game that is so visual um, and so... You know, like, there's so many details... Uh, but it's all spoken word. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you've got a movie playing in your head with all of this stuff going on, and in your head the dragon has all red books, and in the player's head they have all blue books, and for whatever reason it matters. Yeah. And that moment where anybody at the table, including the GM, says, oh, but I thought, is not a fun moment. Yeah, and there, there are a lot of ways to deal with that. That um, I, I think I mentioned this a few weeks back. I, I wish that... Um, some games had a bit more discussion of the practical, like, how do you have a conversation about the game? Uh, because this is something that I always do with my groups that I, I've realized is not as common. Like, we will we'll do varying amounts of rewind if we realize that we've been on different pages for some amount of time. Or we'll kind of, like, shift things a little bit one way or the other. And, you know, if, if you guys have planned everything based on there being books there, and you get there, and I was thinking there weren't, and for some reason I didn't know about your plan, and this wasn't as, like... If there actually was a, a diverging understanding of something, right. then we, we reconcile that and deal that trying to adhere too much to like an established fiction it, it can interfere with that. And right. part of it's just the way you have the conversation. Right. Like it, it's the practical conversation of, oh, we're on different pages, let's zip back there. It's why it's so hard coming at a world from no shared understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was was it Cam Banks? Somebody posted on G Plus the other day about looking for sci-fi games. Yes. And why there isn't a sci-fi game to D&D. Like, Traveler's probably the closest, but yeah. very few people play Traveler compared to D&D. Mm-hmm. And I think the big reason is that D&D is generic fantasy universe, and lots of people have read generic fantasy in the generic sense, right? Yeah. Because there's a lot about fantasy that ends up being pretty generic. Yeah. You know, you go, oh yeah, this is the elf type of person, so we know how kind of that works, whatever. But a lot of sci-fi, you know, there's definitely fantasy that's weird. I mean, Amber, right? Yeah. Um, but in, you understand generic fantasy. Whereas in sci-fi, sci-fi's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And so you, there's no generic sci-fi. Star Wars probably gets the closest, which is what he mentioned. But uh, there's so many, like, in so many other types of sci-fi, having a laser sword would be, like, right. a non-starter. Super weird, And, right? like, the, the Force and all this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah, here's yeah, here's a, a sci-fi where we all have swords and pellet weapons because yeah. shields, whatever, right? Yep. That's a really good point. Uh, the generic fantasy, there, there are so many books that fall closer to generic fantasy than most sci-fi falls to some kind of generic sci-fi. Right. And, and there are so many sci-fi things that right off the top of your head, you you have these kind of branching decisions into, like, what sub-genre you're in. Like, right. faster than light travel. Like, it, that, right. that already... How, how aliens. How like, hard, how soft are we? Yeah. You know, are we talking magic plus sci-fi? Are we talking... Are there computers? Yeah. Uh, you know, faster than light communication, not just travel. Yep. Um, and all of these are like parameters on your games. Like, yeah, and it's so hard to say that it's a generic sci-fi game because right. uh, it, it's weird. Generic fantasy has so many more things that kind of stick with it. And th- there are some fantasy 
novels that definitely fall outside of that, but I feel like most of those you you call them out as special cases. Yeah, and like a lot Disc of them. World and, yeah, yeah, but I mean, even even Discworld, it, it's you plain start tropes. You start from the same place, right? Yeah. I think that's the big divergence in fantasy is kind of the tone and where the story's going. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the difference between Tolkien and George R. R. Martin is mainly one of where the focus is and how gritty the world is. But, like, you throw somebody into one of those worlds at a random location, they're going to take a while to figure out which one they're in, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. here are some people, and they're walking towards me with swords and shields. I have no idea. Maybe do a few little kind of magic tricks with, yeah. Uh, There's a dragon in the distance, right? Yeah. they are very different stories, but from a perspective of, okay, we're going to tell a new story in a world kind of like that, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about whether this person has read Game of Thrones or has read Tolkien. It's just, yeah, you've read fantasy books before, right? And it's interesting because games for each of those are actually pretty different, but they share more common ground in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Like they, Or it's easier if somebody is looking for one to maybe sell them onto the other. Whereas if somebody is looking for Star Wars sci-fi and they get Starship Troopers sci-fi. Right, or Star Trek. Or Star Trek, or Alien. Like, all of these are super so divergent. That... And then the words, too, the vocabulary. Like, yeah. in fantasy, you go, and that's a dragon. And everybody's like, oh, even though there might be a slight, you know, weird detail difference between dragons here and dragons there. Yeah. But you go somewhere else and you go, oh, yeah, and then they're going to talk over the Ansible. And you're like, wait, you haven't read that specific sci-fi mm-hmm. book? Uh, and, like, you, if you're trying to drill down in types of aliens, you've got, like, xenomorphs or buggers or, like, all of these have slightly differing meanings of what kind of alien we're talking about. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Or so, you can go with the sci-fi bumpy, or Star Trek bumpy nose or pointy ears kind of approach. Totally. <sighs> but so that's, that's, the, that's the difficulty. And that's, that's another big thing about talking, you know, to bring it all back, uh, is how much of a shared world do you and your players already have? Mm-hmm. And I think this kind of wheel of archetypes that, that Apocalypse World and, and uh, Icelanders does is one piece of that, but you also need other setting pieces of that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, this is going to give you motivations and kind of feel about the character, but you also need all of the set dressing around that. You know, uh, the this particular race in your world uses really long swords and no shields, uh, and so you can pick... An archetype and a detail from a culture and just smash them together to form random NPCs. And this actually, like, that's the thing that uh, Sagas and Apocalypse World rely on is the fact that you have um, the the character sheets actually are explaining a lot of that stuff as well. Right. Uh, Like farms and stuff and households for uh, the Sagas of the Icelanders or Hardholds and uh, Chopper Gangs and all that stuff for... Um, apocalypse world like you you have to establish that stuff but the game can give you a lot of tools and those tools are kind of symmetric like if you're going to change one of them the other might fall out of wonk as well i think icelanders has a really hard task for it in in particular right Uh, apocalypse world apocalypse world is really cool but you know you can explain it to a player as we're going to play mad max Mm -hmm. uh and that will get enough details so that people have a general idea I like doing really weird uh, apocalypses when I play Apocalypse yep, World. Me too. Uh, but you know, you get the idea of this. What, what's going to happen? Icelanders is not like much. Oh, it's not like much. But I, I actually think that uh, the book uh, does a good job of going out of the way on that. Right. Um, so there's. Oh man, I if I was about to run sagas, I'd have it handy so that I could read it. Uh, but there, it says. For like three genres, um, westerns, uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and two others. Um, both why Iceland is kind of like that in that time period, but also why that it's doesn't not. fit. But this is this is the thing though is that uh, you everybody better read that and internalize it. Well, but I think as a GM, I, I've had some luck uh, capsuling that fast enough, and it's short enough that really, if you wanted to, you could even read it. Well, because I mean, Saga does a really good job baking it into character information and 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 playbooks and all of this yep. other kind of stuff. Like it's baked all the way through the game. 
but I, I have to admit, I failed at it. Like the, the <laughs> first time that I ran Sagas instead of playing it, um, everybody thought that we were doing more like Beowulf, and they were like, "There's, there's going to be a monster, and we can kill it." And like, sure, we're normal people, but this is kind of like uh, a this, saga, an epic. Um... Yeah, this is an epic, not like a saga, which is an arbitrary divide I just made up. No, it's uh, it's it's a good it's a good divide. Like um, Beowulf specifically being something that's didn't happen right yeah. like legitimately did not happen and the, the whereas saga the sagas being... are this is what happened from a certain point of view yeah they at least claim to be kind of an actual historical ish historical ish yeah um so yeah i think you know i really want to play sagas i haven't played sagas oh, yet well um sometime you can run it and then i can I'll play it yeah uh but but i think that that's the big that's one of the things that i really like out of an rpg is those two pieces of tools mm-hmm. the uh here is you know random internal you know this person is a person in a way that normal people would understand unless we're playing sci-fi and then yeah. This is a an alien in the way that normal people wouldn't understand type of thing, but but that kind of uh, motivational uh, wheel in a way, and then the setting on top of that that I have something visible because mm-hmm. the problem with the motivational wheel by itself is that okay now I know this person really wants food, but I can't just you know I can't just be like this person is hungry you can see yeah. uh, to an extent right. Um, more mo- other motivations are much more difficult, but I can say this small, tiny little detail and add to the world. Um, so yeah, I think that that covers NPCs pretty well. Um, oh, there is a fourth type of character. Oh, really? Oh no, surprise! Uh, the runner down, I guess, uh-huh. uh, which is the protagonist NPC, uh-huh. which is the please don't create this person NPC. <laughs> um, your NPC should never be. Uh, Let's, let's see, more interesting, more screen time, more something than the players. I think that the your NPCs always exist in relation to the players. Sure, um, and that's a great way to put it. The way that like Dungeon World basically says this up front, and the way that because then people talk like will kind of say like, oh, this game is just all about the players, which is true, but not in this kind of like the players have to be the heroes of the story. Like the players. Uh, the player characters are the ones we're going to focus on purely because everybody around the table, like, this is the one thing we all have in common is these player characters. Right. Uh, like, it, they don't have to be the heroes of the world. They don't have to be what anybody else would think of as the, the main point of the story. But for us here, right. everybody else is secondary. And you as GM, better you need to have your focus, in most games anyways, on a ton of different characters. And so if one of them becomes way more important... Uh, and you're not getting out of the other ones, then mm-hmm. suddenly you as the GM have way more talking time. Yeah. Which is a terrible thing. Like, you don't have enough time to focus on the other characters to make them interesting, and your one character probably isn't going to be very interesting to everybody else either, which is just not so yeah. great. It's kind of the flip side of the deciding who your major bad guys are ahead of time is deciding who a major protagonist, which... Kind of Here's problem. the most powerful wizard, and he's on your team, and he's going to be following you on this yep. mission. And he's going to be telling you what to do, and uh, there, there are ways to subvert that. Pendragon kind of does a few of them, but uh, yeah, for the most part, your your characters, your NPCs in general, shouldn't be presumed to be important. They shouldn't be protagonists. Yeah, I think games that end up having uh, more statted out NPCs fall victim to this more often. Yes. Like in D&D, uh, you need to stat out your character if it's going to be the big bad evil guy. Mm-hmm. At which point you've done all of this work to figure out, oh, well, they'd be a fighter with two classes of wizard. Mm-hmm. And you're like, I know how this person would play. And, oh, I want to see this spell in action and whatever. And you are just pushed inexorably towards... This is going to be a DMPC, which is not a fun time. Yeah, that definitely depends on additions. I, like, yeah, early yeah, D&D perhaps. is actually fantastic for just being like, eh. I'm going to roll this die. It'll yeah. be great. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, but uh, I agree. Like the, the more detail you have to put in, and that's why uh, the Burning Wheel Quick NPC is a, a huge benefit, because it helps you as a GM get out of that sure. mind frame. Like, cool. You, because otherwise... 
Burning Wheel is definitely yeah, a game. life path up an entire character. Exactly. At that point, you know them, and you're like, oh, he, he had that horrible childhood. And oh, this would no. be so much fun to play, and yeah. your players will never see any of this background. And yeah. yeah. So yeah, that that's uh, and it's partially the ease of translation because the the easier you can jump into that, even if it you are trying to make a powerful character, you haven't invested that much time in them. Right. Yeah. The when I played Burning Empires and kind of ignored the suggestion and statted up some of the major NPCs a little sooner than maybe. Yeah, they, I was like, oh, these would be really like maybe the players should play these. No. Um, totally. Okay, so our uh, and answers to NPCs. <laughs> uh, our scale of NPCs, which I quite like. Yeah, definitely build build characters starting small and with very very little attachment, mm-hmm. and then look for like pillars you can build around and don't presume you know where they're going. Woo. Awesome. Well, until next time, uh, this has been another question.